0: And welcome to episode 16 of the Untethered podcast. Today, we have Diane Barr, a certified speech-language pathologist and infant massage instructor. She is a visionary with a mission. For almost 40 years, she has treated children and adults with feeding, motor speech, and mouth function problems. While she is a speech-language pathologist by training, she has also honed her skills as a feeding therapist, published author, international speaker, university instructor, and business owner. She maintains a private practice, writes articles appearing in a variety of publications and is interviewed frequently on radio and for magazines. Diane is the author of the textbook, Oral Motor Assessment and Treatment, Ages and Stages, and two parent professional books. The first one being Feed Your Baby and Toddler Right, Early Eating and Drinking Skills Encourage the Best Development, and the second one being Nobody Ever Told Me or My Mother That, Everything from Bottles and Breathing to Healthy Speech Development. Well, Diane, I just wanna thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. And I know that we have a lot of great things to chat about, so let's just jump right in and start talking about, you know, breastfeeding versus bottle feeding, because I know that this is, I've actually learned a lot from you on this topic, and I'd love to hear what you have to say um, about this topic, especially with recommended interventions for children who can't nurse well or take a bottle.
1: Okay, so, For a long time, even when I was, well, actually for a long time, when I was in Baltimore, I had the opportunity to work with uh, four IBCLCs. uh, And they were always really good at supplementing the babies who were having trouble breastfeeding. I usually saw them after they tried everything they knew. Um, And they were also very good at identifying tongue ties, so usually I didn't have to think too much about that with that group. Um, and I, I dedicated my first book, Nobody Ever Told Me or My Mother, that to them. And then in this book, the new one, Feed Your Baby and Toddler Right, and, uh, it's an update of the feeding information that's also in the 2010 book. Um, and because we have so much new information. So we've always suspected that breastfeeding and bottle feeding were different processes. But now we have the research to show it. And so in chapter two of that Feed Your Baby and Toddler right book, I've got a side by side comparison. Um, and so if you're a therapist and you have that book uh, and you don't wanna overwhelm a parent by having them buy the book, uh, one of the things you can do is just share a single page with them so that they understand that, for example, If you're bottle feeding, you're going to get your jaw to a certain height. There may be a tiny bit of jaw movement in there. It's very tiny. Hopefully, it's up and down, not front back, uh, because that's the way the jaw is supposed to move, up and down. And you're going to get a lot of cheek and lip movement, which is why babies who are missing sucking pads, which we'll talk about, um, why they can bottle feed often and not breastfeed well. So breastfeed, I love the way Kathy Jenna, who's yay, coming here to do a a workshop for us. Um, I love the way Kathy Jenna explains this in her book. I think it's called Supporting Sucking Skills. Um, But you can look her up. She has a website. She's a wonderful IBCLC. She's helped me out a lot with my information uh, when I wanted to get feedback. And so she basically says in her book, this is what breastfeeding is. So instead of you basically just putting a bottle nipple in the child's mouth with a latch area, uh, the baby's anterior tongue comes out. We have an anterior tongue response. That's what I'm choosing to call it. It used to just be called the tongue response. Mm. That anterior tongue grasps the mother's breast, or at least this is how it's supposed to work. (laughs) Then it's a very sophisticated process. The breast, and yet it's, it's really very natural if you have a baby that has a full set of structures. Okay, so then the baby draws the nipple fully into the mouth, which helps to keep that upper palate, that roof of the mouth, spread because mm-hmm. babies are born with a spread palate and we want to keep it that way. And so then we have the front of the tongue now with the jaw moving up and down. In the front, which as we know later on, that's going to lead us into a mature oral phase swallow with the tongue moving up. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then we have that wave-like motion and the pressure changes toward the back of the tongue. And so a lot of parents uh, will you know the IBCLC will bring the child to me usually after they've can't seem to problem solve some of these things. And that was the case in Maryland. And so I have an e-course that anybody can have for free. All you have to do is email me, dibahr at cox.net, dibar at cox.net, and I will give you the free e-course on newborn and infant mouth development that basically shows you these kinds of things. So one reason, say a mom's been breastfeeding, been pretty successful, then suddenly she wants to go back to work or whatever and can't move the baby onto a bottle, it's because they're completely different processes. So there is a big difference between breast and bottle feeding. Mm -hmm. We're seeing a lot of problems, and I have a section in the new book on this, why are we seeing a lot of problems with moms breastfeeding these days. And it's not mom. Um, If you look at Elsa Rothenberry's uh, article that she wrote on our website, our website is ages, A-G-E-S, ages and A-N-D stages. Um, We actually have the trademark for that. Uh, So we're not the test. Uh, So ages and stages are cox.net.
0: well, that's the email. your the email. Yeah, but agesandstages.net. Right. Thank you. And we'll, and we'll put all of these things. <laughs> I'm, I'm writing down everything for you guys. Yeah. I'm writing all of this down, and we'll make sure all of these links are in there, yeah. <laughs> including your two books and all that fun stuff. Yeah, so
1: agesandstages.net. You know, if you go on there and you look at – there's a commentary by Elsa Rothenberry. Elsa Rothenberry is an IBCLC who took my course in Australia, but she only did it because – you know, she wanted to hang out and maybe pick up some validation. But she's she was the first IBCLC, I understand, in Australia. Mm. And so one of the things that she writes about uh, on our website is that often if moms think they don't have the milk supply. They don't, you know, there's something with, they have inverted nipples. It's this, that, or something else. And usually there's something subtle in the baby's mouth going on Mm. and so in the e-course what people will see you'll see me treating at the end you'll see me treating a baby that's having trouble breastfeeding and a baby that is breastfeeding fine but has down syndrome Mm. and so uh, that baby came every month so we could keep her up to speed with her breastfeeding Um, but the other baby who's having trouble breastfeeding uh, was thought to have a tongue tie And so what you'll see at the end is I go in, I check for the sucking pads. So sucking pads, if you look at the nursing literature, and I have lots of research, there's so much research out there today, thankfully. Um, Some of it's older just because it really doesn't need to be redone. Um, And a lot of it's newer. But people think children have sucking pads because they have chubby cheeks. But the way you can really tell somebody has a sucking pad, which develops at the end of pregnancy, when the fat develops on the body, is by taking your finger and gloved finger for us and going in. If you can barely get your finger between that child's gum and cheek, and you feel a ball of fat in the cheek, then the child has adequate sucking pads. Yet we're finding 40 weakers. We thought in Maryland that it was you know maybe the babies were uh, born a little early because uh, they were scheduled deliveries and things um, but we're finding here 40 40 plus weekers without sucking pads mm. and so we don't really know why that's happening but I also I have a video in that e-course that shows you what happens when the baby doesn't have those fat pads because they provide the lateral stability and close down the oral space so the baby can draw the mother's nipple in.
0: Mm-hmm. And so they can anyway, the milk and yeah. have it flow back nicely. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: Exactly. So anyway, this baby that you'll see in the e-course, um, she didn't end up having a tongue tie. Uh, she was doing a lot of humping and bunching of her tongue. She didn't have a lot of... A rhythmic organization to her suck by the way one of the things that Kathy uh, Jenna and uh, there's an article by Elad at, at all uh, it's instrument it's done with instrumentation it shows us that we're born with the suck that we're gonna have for life so we used to think the true suck developed later but babies are born with a true suck they're also born with a suckle reflex. But babies have been sucking. If you look at Dr. Guimano's work, uh, we honor Dr. Guimano. He's recently passed away. But
0: he mm-hmm. was
1: one of our best. Um, and I had a chance to edit for him a little bit. And I learned so much just by reading his articles. <laughs> but anyway, what we know is you have to have enough intraoral pressure to draw the breast in. And that's part of it. And you have to have organization in the mouth with that up, down, jaw movement. So it's two simple things. The lactation consultants have been doing this forever. It's something called a dancer hand position. And it's really not squeezing the cheeks. It's really just the thumb on one cheek and the middle finger on, you know, or whatever your hand with is on another cheek. And you're simply, with a baby that doesn't have sucking pads, you're simply teaching the motor plan to bring those cheeks in, Mm -hmm. and then once the baby has it, you don't have to do that forever. It's called the dancer hand position in breastfeeding. Um, I use modified dancer hand positions. If a baby is in a cradle hold, mom can slip the hand underneath the baby's cheek, and gravity is pushing down on the top. Um, So yeah, they're very different processes. And with bottle feeding, one that I recommend in both books, ways to bottle feed um, that are appropriate according to our feeding standards. And paste bottle feeding is what the IBCLCs and other lactation people are often using. Um, Now they're getting a little more sophisticated. There's one group that I talk about in the book, and I can't remember their names off the top of my head, but they're actually matching the flow of the bottle with mother's milk flow.
0: Which is that Ensign?
1: Um, <laughs> it may be, yeah, I yeah. it's in the book,
0: I don't know, you know, but Nina Johansson. Yeah, because they okay. sent me some samples and just the nipples even that they've sent that we've used with some of the other bottles are phenomenal.
1: Yeah, yeah, because you see all these bottle nipples on the market and yet I just spoke with another therapist last week Uh, And she's still using the Playtex Nurser. I mean, that's the one we've used forever. Mm -hmm. My daughter used it to supplement her breastfeeding. She has three children, three young children. Uh, She's also a feeding therapist. Uh, So, paste bottle feeding usually recommends a slow flow, uh, waiting till the baby's ready to eat. You roll the bottle nipple in. I like a rounded nipple for tongue cupping um but really the nip, there's no orthodontic nipple no matter what anybody says
0: because thank you for saying that <laughs>
1: there's no nipple like mom that's there's right nothing that, there's nothing we have that's going to keep the palate spread and it's the same with pacifier use pacifier use uh, pretty much the same guidelines um i only use uh have parents use a pacifier if they absolutely need it if the baby can't self-calm Um, and the parent can't always be putting their finger in the child's mouth to calm them but in hunting and gathering societies if you read ashley montague's work he was an anthropologist Uh, he did some of the best research and what uh, he found was that in hunting gathering societies Mom would carry baby around in like a sling all day as she was doing her gathering and her chores. And baby could latch as much as 100 times for either comfort or for feeding. So uh, you know, but moms can't do that today. It's just not realistic. So that's why I wrote these books for your typical families, as well as your families who are trying to keep their children with disabilities on track.
0: Mm-hmm. Because at Loyola,
1: we found uh, with our children with Down syndrome, we saw them from at Loyola University in Maryland. We saw many of them uh, from birth. and we found that when the parents kept the feeding on track, this was my daughter's thesis actually uh, that the we didn't even have tongue thrust or a lot of those things that mm-hmm. were are mentioned in the literature with children with Down syndrome. Oh. and so You know, it really is, and there's a lot of other stuff, postural control and all that. So we talked about breast and bottle feeding. Did I answer your question about the child who can't nurse well?
0: Yes, yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, kind of going forward, related to that question, but then when you do have tethered oral tissues involved, I know you had mentioned a case where you thought that was the case, but it actually was not what was impacting her feeding. You know. How have tethered oral tissues impacted feeding for your patients or clients, Right. right. Um, you know, when, when that has been a factor? Yeah.
1: yeah. So with the child in Baltimore, what you'll see me do at the end of the e-course is you'll see me organize her jaw. So she's chewing just on the fleshy part of my finger on one side and then the other. Then I turn my finger over because I couldn't get tongue cupping. Hmm. Then I do some carefully applied cheek support not squeezing and I get a tongue cup and her tongue comes out over the lower gum so we know even if she had a tongue tie it wasn't a significant factor in what we were doing there Um, the other thing that I want to mention before we move on from this one question is there are many ways to feed a baby so Kelly mom there's a great article on Kelly mom if you can't find it Kelly mom is a research-based breastfeeding site, mm-hmm. and you will see a, lots of ways to feed a baby. And, and your lactation people know this. And so I just was did an interview with a student who's doing a research project, and you know what I said is I don't try to do the lactation consultant's job. We work together. And we videotape everything we do so the parent can review or anybody else who needs to review. We give the parent practice with what they need to do. So yes, tethered oral tissues. So say a child is restricted in utero. So I've I've written about this. I wrote a chapter for Leigh Pasquet and Dr. Sabina. I can't remember her last name right now. But the book should be coming out soon. Um, And we go all the way back into utero in that chapter. And so with that, if we have a child, and Dr. Gimeno and others have taught me much about this, if we look in utero, that child with a, uh, a tongue restriction um, is going, not going to be sucking normally. So they're not going to come out with a suck. Well, they might come out with a suck, but it's not going to be a suck that um, is going to be effective mm-hmm. uh, usually if it's a significant tongue tie. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, and here. if you look at Irene Marquezine's work, Roberta Martinelli from uh, Brazil, uh, you can read all about the different tongue ties, and and also Kathy's uh, Supporting Sucking Skills. I think that's the name of it. Pardon me, Kathy, if I'm not getting the title quite right, but people will just look you up. Um, Her name's Katherine Watson-Jenna, and the book is just excellent if you want to figure these things out. So anyway, when we had preemies years ago, before we had a lot of tube feeding, we fed babies with open medicine cups. Um, and there are supplemental feeders, there's all those ways. And the lactation people know that. Um, so, you know, they come in, they've tried these different things. We work beside each other, and then we just see what works best and is most effective. So, there are many ways to do this. We just need to have this team, I feel. Mm-hmm. You know? Okay, now to tuts. So that baby is tied in utero. Um, they're, not, they're gonna be sucking amniotic fluid, but not in a typical way if they're significantly tied. And so then what's gonna happen is they'll come out. If, if a child is born with a high, narrow palate, and the reason a high, narrow palate is problematic for anybody is that when the roof of the mouth goes up, it makes the nasal area smaller, which makes breathing more difficult.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so anyway, um, what that's one of the reasons that we do jaw work. But anyway, if a baby comes, is born with a high narrow palate, <laughs> you better look for tongue restriction. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, because there's some reason the tongue, and at, that's what you do as an oral facial myofunctional therapist, mm-hmm. and we do as feeding therapists, and Motor speech therapist is we teach people to have a resting position with the tongue and the palate, and the baby should have that yes. in utero. Okay, so if your baby comes out snoring, I have one of these kids in the e course, um, then somebody better look at whether there's a restriction. Uh, also, I think babies. I know Brazil may not be perfect at what they're doing, and you know, people tell me that, I don't know. I, I think they're way ahead of us.
0: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> with their infant screening in the hospitals, I mean, they're light years ahead of us.
1: So my, my opinion, we should be releasing those tongues at birth and then getting in there and getting our lactation people to help the mom work with the best suck possible. Because if that baby's been sucking with, with a tether, then that baby's been using a different motor plan yeah. than when that tether is released, and here is the problem. So now we don't. So my people in Baltimore, I, I can't remember having to deal with it except that one child, <laughs> where they they had a question about it, mm-hmm. um, because they took care of it. You wow. know, um, not the lactation people, but they they followed up in a way that it was taken care of. So I didn't have to really deal with it that mm-hmm.
0: much. -hmm.
1: Telling lip ties. But here, you know, in uh, Las Vegas, our teams, we're really growing as a medical community. Our teams are really coming together. We're getting this information. And so many times I'll get a child that's not released till four or five months of age. And then that child has used a compensatory strategy for all that time. Yeah. So. What I, and then the parents are asked if it's a laser release to do tongue lifts mm-hmm. and keep that that area open, that diamond area open. But a lot of the parents aren't comfortable going in their baby's mouth. So, what we're doing as much as we can, and this is true of all of us, you and everybody who does this work. Uh, Robin mm-hmm. Merkel Walsh has just written something or done, she's just did a webinar and she's written a book, I think, with Laurie Overland on. Tethered oral tissue. Yeah, yeah. um, anyway, uh, you know, so we have lots of good information, but imagine being a parent having to go in and do these stretches with no preparation. So, what we're doing now is we're bringing the parent in, we're teaching them what to do. I have one coming in next Saturday who is one of Dr. Zaghi's patients. Um, And we're going to get as much function as possible with the tether and get the parent comfortable with being in the child's mouth Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: then we'll go for the release and then we'll see the parent, you know, whoever the IBCLC who knows the work um, It's usually not me uh, Because I've trained the IBCLC's I've worked with to do the work (laughs) so they go in and they help the parent get the work done after, and get the jaw work done, which can which can really help organize the jaw. Get the tongue cupping going, and then over time, as the child's older, get the tongue lateralizing. Because if you've got a tongue that's restricted, um, now lateralization develops. You know, for placement and collection of food and cleaning the insides of the cheeks with your tongue. That really develops over the first two years. So if you're released early, you can much just get your tongue cupping going Uh, if you can't get tongue cupping carefully applied cheek support will help and then working on tongue cupping I mean tongue lateralization as appropriate And all of my books and the pre-feeding skills book are literature based and criterion referenced so when you use those books you know that that information has been based on a longitudinal study of typical feeding Done by Suzanne Evans Morris, and then Amy Delaney confirmed the first six months in her doctoral dissertation. That's wonderful. So that way you know that what you're doing is correct. Mm -hmm. All right. So, yes, we need to reduce, we need to uh, take care of those restrictions as soon as possible. We need, again, our team. We need a good pediatric dentist, uh, a good pediatric ENT. Um, or one or the other, depending. We need uh, somebody, a lactation person. I, you know, we want to get as much breastfeeding as possible. And Just we need like that. yesterday. It said so many moms are pumping their breast milk and bottle feeding, and that's fine. But the bottle cannot do for the mouth what the breast can in terms of development.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and I love how you mentioned that we really need that pre-op to gain as much function as is possible with the current state of the tongue. Regardless yes. of how tied you are or not, um, you know that's huge. And what I actually find is that when we do that pre-op care, and this is, you know, if you're following this podcast, you've probably heard me beat you over the head with this information at this point. Um, <laughs> when we do this and we gain some function, we're getting better results when they're released, yes. and they're getting, you know, they're now their tongue is more likely to be more functional following the release, yes. and they'll take better to the post-op therapy that they need yes. to create those new motor patterns that were not there previously because they were using different motor patterns, as you also yeah. mentioned. And I think you just lay it out so nicely so that, you know, our listeners will really understand <laughs> why from an infant standpoint, you know, why we really have to do this pre-op and post-op and work from that right. team approach. And there are so many pieces to the puzzle and yeah. we just throw it all on our parents and say, no, oh,
1: it's, no, it's, it's unfair. unfair. Parents yeah. aren't, well, yeah. parents aren't prepared for feeding most of the time. That's why we need, uh, Tanya stegen and I, she's the OT I work with, um, you know, we're going to be doing some things. We hope to get some materials into the American Academy of Pediatrics We I talked to their publishing, uh, their managing editor. We don't want to um, overload them. We don't want to write another book. Uh, we will write another book. Uh, but one reason I put, I mean, there are all these missing pieces. I'll send them to you. Mm-hmm. Um, that I kind of wrote down that parents it, it's just unfair to yeah. expect parents to know how to do this and we end up with traumatized parents we end up yes. with traumatized babies yeah. and then I have I've seen little babies five months old four months old who are defended or defensive they oh, don't want anybody yeah. near their mouths yeah. and so then we have to go back to the oral massage work working our way up toward the face and the mouth mm-hmm. and if we did that all ahead of time then we would be uh, really, and we are. We're getting so much better. I mean, the thing is, I'm spoiled. I work with teams of 40 therapists, every professional, every medical professional you want to know. Uh, at the Maryland School for the Blind, we had an ideal situation. When I worked with adults at Maryland General Bryn Mawr Rehab, we had the same kind of thing. We were transdisciplinary teams. So if PT was working on something and I was working on something, I worked on the PT's goals She worked on my goals while we were, so if the person needed to walk and talk, that's what we did, in other words. So, you know, and now we don't have that. Our medical, we have to make our own teams, and you've done this. You have pulled together people in your community, and it's the same thing we're doing here, pulling together people in our community where we all know each other's work to the point that we know to
0: refer and how to work with one another. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's not easy. So I commend anybody who's really taking the time to do that because we need that team approach. Now you mentioned something about posture a minute ago and it made me think like my kiddos who I see some of these babies who I've seen kids who they they can't be held in their mother's arms to feet because of the sensory motor things going on. They can't, you know, need to lay on the floor. They need to be in a certain position or in a certain right here or whatever. Can we talk about a little bit about like postural development versus postural development.
1: Mm -hmm. This is a big one, and you might think it's crazy when you see the tummy belly time checklist in chapter one of the new book. I love it, I love that checklist. (laughs) What I'm finding is parents, we have the information from Lois Bly, who's an NDT Mm -hmm. therapist who I took a a course or two with. Um, I've been trained by all NDT people, neurodevelopmental treatment people. Suzanne Morris is still my mentor. To this day tanya stick enhances is mdt trained so um and si sensory integration trained so you know if you do not and this is in pre-feeding skills if you do not get the quality of movement in the body you're not going to get it in the mouth or the wrists or the hands or the eyes those mouth eyes wrists hands all fine motor function and so we have pediatricians, bless them, saying 20 minutes of tummy time. And I have a set of parents who did that religiously and their baby was like a pancake.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, not because of the pediatrician, they didn't mm-hmm. get bad advice, but just telling them 20 minutes, they didn't know what the quality was. You know, So the quality of tummy time is different for a one-month-old, a two-month-old, a three-month-old. Kids usually get their hands and objects to their mouths in tummy time before they do on the back. We have all these kids that they're in like this high guard position. They're stuck in a more response, it seems. Um, at least that's what my full body Tanya and I are writing something about full body reflexes as well and their development. Um, but what you're talking about is when babies spend an inordinate amount of time on their backs, which they need to do to sleep, to the American Academy of Pediatrics so we have to follow that um, if they are in containers uh, we have gravity constantly pulling back on the structures and so when you see the little girl with Down syndrome in the e-course you'll see that if I didn't support her head neck and shoulder girdle in my clean socked feet <laughs> which <laughs> Suzanne taught me to do
0: um,
1: I wouldn't her hands on her back would not come to her mouth. Mm. So one of the things Tanya and I hope to do, and I'll go over planes of movement that will answer the question generally, but we we plan to pull Volpe's work, which is very well-researched, Lois Bly's work, and anybody else's work that's very well-researched. We're gonna go back to the original research articles so that we all have them. And we are going to talk about development on the tummy on the, in the sides because the pancake kid he could do the tummy and he could flip to the yeah. back yeah. but he had no five months old he had no control in rolling
0: I've got it, a Carol exactly like this right now <laughs> I mean, you're describing one of my clients and I'm like Yep. and and surprisingly <laughs> enough like he can flip one way he can't flip both ways he can't flip back over you know when he's on the belly the head is up but it's bopping around yeah and that should come under control if you look if
1: you look at that checklist in Chapter One of Feed Your Baby and Toddler Right, mm-hmm. um, you know you'll see that where how that control
0: really comes in. Yeah, and then yeah. how it impacts adding in the solid yes. feeds as well, which is another great place to go next because you need. Yeah. To yeah. up. When That's I tell right. parents, your yeah. child is not ready to eat because they can't hold their head up at six months. <gasps> They look at me like I have 15 eyeballs shooting out of my head, and I'm like, like, well, you know, we really have to think about airway, and can he breathe before we allow him to start putting these solids in, in this position? Uh, I'm going
1: gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to put my finger up so I remember to talk about planes of motion yeah. uh, in the body, but back to your airway thing. Yeah. The IBCLCs in Baltimore, they made sure a baby could breathe in their car seat, Mm. or the parents could take them home in the car seat. So they made sure that this happened, because guess what? Especially if you have a baby like me on the low side of normal, in terms of muscle tone, you know? So what's happening if we're on our backs all the time, if we're in containers, is gravity's pulling all those things back. And that's why I like uh, the... Uh, dentist I'm working with, she has a myofascial worker, which I'm always I'm also trained in all of that. I went to the mm-hmm. Baltimore School of Massage, I'm myofascial trained, I'm, I'm craniosacral trained, but I don't do that. I just help see where we might need to go and then I send them to the person. But she goes in before we uh, tongue tie release
0: mm-hmm. and releases
1: any of those fascial restrictions too That's that could happen awesome. by the tongue being stuck back and it's why adults have sleep apnea and we have more children with sleep apnea than we know Mm -hmm. so i now have a pulse oximeter and uh i check when i put my of course my clients are usually more involved than the typical child although we're getting too many typical typically born children on our caseloads as well but all this postural stuff you have to have lateral movement in the body weight shifting you have to have diagonal movement in the body, the core. Wow. And parents understand this because a lot of people understand core development. So you And you have to have rotational movement in the core in order to get those movements in what we call fine motor function. And that's when you say they're not ready to eat. So I was talking to a family from Australia, and the baby wasn't really crawling. The, the baby was just bunny hopping like forward. Mm-hmm. And the baby only had a single plane of motion, anterior, posterior, in the mouth. Mm. And so uh, first thing I said, you're, you're not going to guess what I'm going to tell you first. First thing you have to do is get an OT or PT to work with you to get those planes of movement in the body so we can get those planes of movement in the mouth. Because so oh, interesting. Yeah, exactly. So I did talk about that. Uh, what would you like to talk about now?
0: So um, what are – are there any, like, major red flags that you see, whether it's in new, newborns, infants, or toddlers, as far as swallowing disorders go? Because I know people go, like, oh, they must have a tongue tie, and that's obviously not always the case. So, like, what are, what are other red flags? You know, I, I know we have talked about some of these things kind of – throughout what we've chatted about, but just to give like a little bit of a list to our listeners.
1: And there are a lot of people like me who have done quite well in our lives. We've compensated with a posterior tongue tie.
0: Yes. Uh, my
1: ENT won't do anything with that because my airway is already too small. And that's because I had my palate pulled in, it's high and narrow, teeth were removed with typical orthodontic work, we now know not to do those kinds of things. Red flags are if they're not on track. I mean, that's why I put those checklists in Mm -hmm. every chapter of Nobody Ever Told Me or My Mother That, and in the first chapter of this new one. Um, And they're cheap. I mean, the books, relatively speaking, ones like, at the most, $15. You might get it for 10 um, on Amazon. Then the other one's like twenty-five. You might get it for twenty. I mean, thing is, So we
0: can. So I'm going to put those in the show notes. So if people are yeah. wondering, like, what yeah. are the red flags? When should we be concerned? I love how you yeah. said, like,
1: there's if falling. If they're falling off the checklist, if they're falling off and the then, checklist. And the okay. nobody ever told me or my mother that,
0: mm-hmm. those
1: speech checklists will not change, even if I do a speech, a second book. To update speech, what will we'll be updated will be in the literature because we have a lot more motor speech literature now.
0: Well, but, let's go, let's go there too. So yeah. you know, as far as like tethered oral tissues and delayed speech, yep. You know, I know we talked about feeding, but mm-hmm. speech, you know, what do you see as far as that goes?
1: Well, you know, uh, we for years. So anyway, red flags, get the checklists, and follow them. Yeah, And what's nice about the Nobody book is there are free guides on my website, Age and Topic. So this is like an encyclopedia. I repeat stuff over and over. Okay. So you don't have to go looking
0: for it. It's also on your website. If
1: you go to the Age and Topic guides that are on my website and you print them out, then if you have a one-month-old, just go to the one-month-old
0: checklist. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Well, you couldn't make it yeah. any easier. I love it.
1: <laughs> and then this one, all the checklists, the new one, are in the first chapter. So you know, just uh, actually for doctors, and and I was going to do an app, but they're so hard to do. Um, I'm still trying to figure out how I can just get the checklists out to people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still want them to understand why they're doing the work. So great. Right. I'm kind of trying to figure that out right now. But look at the checklist and see where your kids are. When it comes to speech, if if they're not on the checklist, it may be that they haven't developed certain movements in the body. Or if they have developed the body, then maybe they haven't developed the mouth. A lot of people don't know. There's a sequence of mouth development. We are born we do generalized mouthing in utero, and in the first about four months, that's all toward the front of the mouth. Then we do discriminative mouthing, which is very important for eating, drinking, and speaking, because you have to have good oral discrimination. And that's where you see your baby sticking their fingers in throughout the mouth. They'll pick up the spoon and chew on it. And we have we have toys, Beckman Try Chews. We have Why Chews. We have... Um, Chewy tubes, Uh, we have a lot of things for babies now that can be used for oral discrimination. And I have parents start that oral discrimination work uh, around three months. Uh, So they're, again, so they're used to their babies having these toys and they do it hand over hand. uh, So that by five months, we have the discrimination. So if you don't have discrimination in the mouth, even if you have the movements in the body, you're not gonna do very well with your eating drinking or speaking now speech is a little different category and the reason we as speech language pathologists were not taught to really deal with tongue tie is because a lot of our older literature said You can speak with a tongue tie. And I'm talking to you right now
0: with a tongue tie. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) I I had one up until about a year and a half ago. So, yeah, and I was speaking with a tongue tie as well. Uh, But (laughs) things are very different for me post op, I will tell you.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. So, you know, when your tongue is tied, so, you know, some people make me sing the song, the tongue is connected to the high or the larynx. (laughs) connected to the hyoid, the jaw is connected to the hyoid. That's this little bone right here that's free floating. And then when you have a restriction in your tongue, you often compensate. So as you saw, when I when I pulled my whole tongue up to the roof of my mouth, mm-hmm. I'm pulling the whole floor of my mouth up.
0: Yeah, I used to do that too.
1: Which is not normal. Yeah. Okay, so a lot of kids can compensate so my three grandchildren are in this book, in addition to Anthony, who was my model for the first book. Um, and at least two of those kids have, still have tongue ties. Uh, because if you don't release them early, then it's often recommended that you wait till they're a little older to release them. Um, and so, because they're not, you know, a two year old isn't going to just let you stretch an open wound.
0: Uh, that's right. Yeah. happened least <laughs> sometime right after she turned two, and I learned that the hard way. <laughs> if I could go back, I would have asked the world surgeon to put some sutures in there or something. Exactly. Because, and, oh, right, that right. and that's why,
1: so if they're done in between, that's why we usually have the doctor put the sutures in that will yeah. melt away. Uh, and that way the parent and the child don't have to go through this very traumatic period Mm -hmm. because the child's in a developmental period of movement and all those kinds of things. Now, one of my grandchildren, the tongue tie really did not affect his speech. Mm -hmm. I mean, although his father thought it did, and they'll both have releases at some point. The other one had a very difficult beginning. Not that he, he was 38 weeks and all that, but uh, he had a 17-day NICU stay and you know all kinds of stuff with that early on. And then he ended up being very, what we call, apraxic. Mm. Uh, but now that's all resolving and he still has <laughs> a tongue-tie, mm-hmm. but you have to really know what to do yes. to resolve that. Yes. So not everybody will know how to resolve. Uh, the, the one grandchild, he sounded a little more dysarthric, a little more slurred speech, but he's compensated for it. So that's why speech therapists or speech language pathologists have not been taught to work with this. But there is some research to say now that speech is affected or can be affected by the tongue tie. Uh, even though some people like me and you, We can make, we can compensate for that. Mm -hmm. And my grandchildren have all, well, at least two of them have compensated for it until they're old enough to get the release and then we work with it from there. Or at the time, we couldn't find anybody to do
0: sutures, but now more people are doing sutures futures with like laser releases yeah exactly. um, yeah Well, and I think that you make a really good point because while some people can learn to compensate really well that kind of goes twofold one do you want to have to compensate for your whole life and, and what energy are you pulling from where else in your body to make those compensations
1: you know because for me yeah,
0: necks, shoulders. Shoulders, yeah. <laughs> and I've always said it's my theory that you know the highway benefits pulled up and forward that also can impact digestion because everything's tied all the way down to your it, system, down to your gut right So there's just so much more I think to think about, but I, like you said, you know, being prepared for it and doing it at the right age for that child or that adult, you know, Based And you said, you know, yours is not being released right now because you have other things to work on first because you said, you know, your airways Well, my
1: doctor won't release it because I already have sleep apnea. Mm-hmm. And I can deal with that. I don't have to wear a CPAP, but I, it's positional. So mm-hmm. if I lay on my slide or my, sl- not my slide, my side or my stomach, mm-hmm. <laughs> then I can, uh, you know, I'm not having the apnea at least mm-hmm. as much. Uh, and but so but is- I need to have my palate spread. Yeah. I need to have those teeth put back in, not my, not my wisdom teeth, the ones that were taken out near the front. Mm-hmm. And then he'll consider releasing my tongue
0: that's um, amazing but And I think that's so important for people yeah. to hear because the first step is not always a tongue tie release like sometimes I have parents who are like okay we're coming to we want to eval like next week because we know that you're going to make us do this pre-op work and we really want to get the tongue tie release before school starts in four weeks and I was like pump the brakes people like I haven't even met your child or you yet like let's let's get you in your front eval because you know sometimes I do have kids who are ready for a release in two weeks but other times it takes several months or maybe we need to go into expansion first and then make sure the tongue has enough room so that your release is actually a successful procedure we don't want to just absolutely so yeah so i love that you touched on some different instances of when you don't immediately go in and release right away
1: yeah Um, and i think that was just an error you know this is whenever i have a conversation yeah parents listening or therapists listening or other professionals listening Please, this is a no go conversation. We yep. make the best decision for your child at the time. Yes, so exactly. I've had kids that have had multiple releases. They have scar tissue under the tongue. There are ways to break up scar tissue if you know mm-hmm. what you're doing. Yep. And uh, you know, our PTs and OTs often know that. I learned, I learned it from John Barnes, who's a physical therapist. Um, so, you know, we can go in and still work with them even if that's been done, yes. but I think that was just an error on this. You know, you know, like the bell curve, people just go went a little on the other side of it for a while, and now we're kind of coming back to the middle and taking a more um, adjusted and um, like better holistic. look, better like holistic. Whole picture. Yeah, yeah, holistic approach. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> in Chapter 7 of Nobody Ever Told Me or My Mother That, you have very specifically what sounds kids are producing. So at one month, you have, and if you take my course, you get all this too. Um, my 12-hour course is the most updated. It's the live course, the one that Hallie just took in Baltimore. Um, my 15-hour course with speech therapy PD is still very good. Um, and so that, that's before I updated it, but it's still very good. And then the one I did for Northern Speech Services, which has me demonstrating, you get to see me
0: demonstrating and you can do the work along with me. So- That's you know, always the best kind of learning, hands-on. I love it. They each have their own value, you yeah. know? We're going to wrap up this episode right here and continue with part two in the next episode. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you want to hear more of these Myo, Tots, Airway, and Feeding-related episodes, be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash the Untethered Podcast. If you found value, others you know in this space will too. So be sure to share this episode on your social media platforms and join us over on Facebook, on my Facebook page at Biz on Instagram at at And you can head over to untetheredpodcast.com to grab a copy of the show notes where you can also Also subscribe to be kept up to date on the latest podcast episodes. Big shout out to Dana McKay, podcaster extraordinaire, for editing and helping me keep this podcast alive.